0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Southside Church Podcast from Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. We're praying that hope would rise in your life as you listen to this message today. Hey, thank you so much. It's so great to be back with you guys. My home away from home, Southside, I love it. And wow, what a year 2024 is shaping up to be. 63 people made decisions to follow Jesus last week and 88 people being baptized, taking their next step in faith. Isn't that incredible? Can we just celebrate that again? That's amazing. It doesn't happen everywhere. God is doing something great here at Southside. And then I hear there's so many people coming that we have to add a third service at 8 a.m. Are you guys excited about 8 a.m.? I wasn't sure what would happen at this service because uh, 8 a.m. is pretty early, but I'm really excited about it, and Pastor Mike is pumped. He's stoked about the 8 a.m. service, and he's been telling the staff all week, he was like, hey, we've got to do anything possible to get as many people possible to the 8 a.m. service. And so I'm here to tell you guys, you don't wanna miss the 8 a.m. service next week because for the first time and maybe the only time in Southside history, Pastor Mike is gonna be preaching in a Canucks jersey. Yes, yes, you heard it here first, so don't miss the 8 a.m. service, the league-leading Canucks, it's amazing. Yeah, so it's great to see what God's doing here at Southside, and I'm so glad I get to be a very small part of it. Um, I'm not really great at sending out uh, Christmas cards, but if I would have sent out a Christmas card this year to all of you guys, it would have looked a little bit like this. This is my uh, family, uh, Gabe, my son is on the left, and his wife, Kelsey, and their little one, Kiera, as my wife is holding, my mother in law is in the middle, and then it's me and my daughter, Danny, and her husband, and then the kids are Adley, she's five, Shiloh is seven, and um, Selah is three. So is there anybody here who has a three-year-old? Anybody, raise your hand if you have a three, oh yeah, I see. Any other hands? Keep them up for just a second if you got a three-year-old. Okay, now look, if you're sitting next to a person who has a three-year-old, at some point during this message, they may fall asleep. And if they do, it's okay. They need their rest, trust me. Don't disturb them, it's quiet. Their kids are being well taken care of and Southside kids. But three-year-olds are absolutely crazy and they have tons of energy. You never know what's gonna happen. And I know this because I had that three-year-old at my house for the whole week of Christmas. And she asked me questions that I don't even know the answers to. I have to go look them up or find someone to ask the questions of. And she runs around, she's got more energy than anybody uh, knows what to do with and um, she's just crazy. So, like, we never know what she's gonna do and when she's gonna do it. The other week, my daughter was walking down the sidewalk near a Mexican restaurant, and the mariachis were playing, and this is what happened with my granddaughter. (laughs) She broke out into full dance party. It was like everybody stopped, and she had to get her dance in for a few minutes. And so, uh, you know what they say about parenthood, right? It's a lot easier to get into than to get out of. It's really true. So let those three-year-old parents have a break here today, all right? Um, when I was a kid growing up, I thought a lot about like what I wanted to do in life, what would be my occupation, and honestly, Being a pastor never crossed my mind. I was like, where would pastor cross my mind? I want to do something that's dangerous and risky and challenging. I want to do something that's going to change the world one day, and I want my life to make a difference. And I never thought pastor would be one of those things. So I thought about it, prayed about it, and decided to go to school to be an accountant. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, dangerous, risky, right? Those tin keys, they can get you a paper cut every once in a while. It's, it's a challenge for sure out there to be an accountant. But yeah, I went to school to be an accountant and uh, graduated, went into the finance world and was doing really well in my occupation for a while. And I started attending a church like Southside. And one day uh, the staff came to me and said, hey, we need a finance guy. Would you come be a finance guy? And so I did. And um, and I was on staff for a little bit longer, and all of a sudden they came to me and said, "We we feel like you have a calling to be a pastor," and I'm like, "Huh?" Because I haven't felt that calling to be a pastor. And they're like, "No, we feel it." And would you pray about it? And so I did, and I became a pastor. And I said, "Well, the good thing about being a pastor is I have the opportunity to change the world with the life-changing message of Jesus. Right? It's going to be great." But I mean, risk and danger, uh, I don't think it's going to happen. And challenge, like being a pastor, like it can't be more challenging than some of the things I've done as an accountant in corporate America. But the one wild card that I didn't think about of being a pastor, the one thing that could change everything about being a pastor was that it involves people people, you guys. It changes everything. It's a real challenge to be a pastor because we experience so many different people, we get to walk along so many people uh, uh, through life, and it's pretty amazing, but I will say this, I've had some pretty crazy experiences as a pastor. Uh, One time, I was in the early service with my wife, and we were just trying to get our praise on and listen to a message, get ready to go out and serve in second service. And um, I get a text message from one of our staff members who would be like, they were guest connections. They would be like, "Does does anybody know Does? If you do, just cheer for. Her. Does anybody know? Come on, everybody's got. An... All right, there's too many people that don't know Does. So after this service, go out there, find Does, join her team because I'm telling you the story I'm about ready to tell you. I'm sure Does has a bunch of those stories every week from her team because they all involve people. So I get this text from our person that's like does, and it says, hey, who's in charge of breaking up fights? I'm like, they're just pulling my chain this morning. So I text back, and I'm like, ha, ha, ha. And then I look at my phone, and the bubbles come up, you know, the three dots, and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. And it comes up and goes, no, seriously, who's in charge of breaking up fights? Because there's one happening on the patio right now. And I'm like, What? And so I jump up and I go running out the auditorium doors through the lobby. When I enter the lobby, I look up and there's five staff members up against the doors, the front doors of the church. They're all looking out the front doors. And as I look over their head, I see two people, a really, really big guy and a lady, are going at it. They are arguing something fierce. And I'm like, what in the world? So I walk through the staff members out the front doors. And as I go through the front doors, I look over to my right. And there's a law enforcement officer standing there watching the whole thing go down. And I'm like, in what world does somebody, when there's a law enforcement officer and five capable people end up calling a pastor out of the service to come and break up a domestic dispute that's happening on the patio. And so I I go right past the officer, I'm heading into battle and I start thinking like, what am I gonna do? I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know how I'm gonna break this up. And then I've always heard in domestic disputes that the person who goes in is often the person who gets hurt. The person that's trying to help actually is the one that gets hurt the most. And I'm like, man, I don't want to get hurt today. I like my face the way it is. I like my clothes. I like my outfit. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to get hurt, but I better get a plan because I'm getting closer and closer. And they were so intense on their argument that they didn't see me coming. And so as I'm getting closer and closer to it, the girl has her back to me. The guy is facing her and he's really letting her have it. And as I get about two feet away, the girl turns around and faces me to walk away from the guy and he reaches his hand out to grab her and pull her back. And right when he does, I said, That's my spot. And I went right around her and I put my hand out and I grabbed his right hand as hard as I possibly could. And I said, and I started shaking it and I said, Hey, good morning. My name's Pastor George. It's so nice to have you at church today. And I held on to that right hand as hard as I could because I'm like, if that's his dominant hand, he certainly can't beat me to death with his left hand, right? And so I smiled and grinned and tried to get to the bottom of what was going on. And eventually we got them separated and gave them a little bit of space. And you're not going to believe this, but about six months later, they came back and asked me if I would marry them. And I was like, "Uh, I don't know about this one. But the craziest things, danger and risk, are in a pastor's job description, believe it or not. I had one guy that was taking LSD before he came to church, and he would sit in the back with the lights and the haze and the music and have his own little worship concert in his mind. He said it helped his euphoric experience be even better. And so that was his reason for coming to church. I'm like, man, people make this challenging. And then... Believe it or not, I've had two experiences with camels in a church. Not one, but two. An eight-foot-tall, 1,100-pound camel with thousands of people inside of a building on concrete floors with lights, music, and haze going on. And let's just say one of the camels ended up on the news. It was not a great experience. Risk, danger, and challenge come in the role of being a pastor, and so what I found out that my most challenging experience was just ahead at that point. And it was the very first funeral that I ever did. And it was for a lady named Miss Brenda Hockenberry. Now, Miss Brenda, she came uh, to our Saturday night service. We had a 5.30 Saturday night service. It was the first one of the weekend. Miss Brenda was always there in the same spot. She sat right here, and this empty chair would be Miss Brenda. Every single week, she would be there smiling, encouraging us as we speak. Now, I was an executive pastor, I wasn't a teaching pastor, so I only spoke about five or six times a year. It was my way to serve the senior pastor, much like I do Mike here to give him a break to have some time off. I would get up and speak. And so my messages weren't always the best. I'm not the best public speaker. I uh, sometimes don't get the jokes just right, but Miss Brenda always laughed at the right time. And Miss Brenda would always say amen at the right places in my message. And Miss Brenda would say attaboy, go get them. And she goes, that's right, Pastor, keep saying it. And Miss Brenda, The one thing she would do that was amazing was every, every Saturday night, Miss Brenda would bring baked goods. And so there were cookies and brownies and cake. And when I was up there, Miss Brenda would bring fried okra, which is a Southern delight. Like if you can cook it right, which Miss Brenda did, it was absolutely amazing. And Miss Brenda would bring that every single Saturday night. Miss Brenda, I could tell, loved me and cared about me. She wanted the very best for me and she wanted to encourage me every time I had the opportunity to speak or she had the opportunity to say something. She wanted me to know how much she valued me. Well, Miss Brenda, she contracted cancer and it was a really quick battle. She was gone in about six months. And when she passed away, her family got together and she had children that went to different churches and they were arguing about who was gonna do uh, Miss Brenda's funeral. And I was like, oh, this is horrible. And her son, who came to our church, came to me and said, Mama wanted you to do her funeral. And I'm like, me? And he was like, yeah. And I said, I I hardly, I'm hardly a pastor. Like, I hardly speak on stage. I don't know how, why she'd want me to do it. And he goes, she loved you. She wants you to do her funeral. And he said, but my siblings are going to have their pastors do it. So I'm not going. And I'm like, you're not going to your mom's funeral? Your mom wouldn't want that. And he's like, I don't care. It was my mom's wishes, and I'm not going unless you preach the funeral. And I'm like, well, I've never done a funeral, and uh, maybe I could pray. Like, that's a good thing, right, for a pastor to come in and pray at a funeral? And I said, why don't you just go ask him if I can have a minute, and I can pray at the end, and then that way we can both go to her funeral. So he did. He comes back, and he says, I got my siblings to compromise. And I'm like, great, great. And I said, what's the deal? And he said, well, they're giving you five minutes after preacher number two. And I'm like, after preacher number two, I got five minutes. And he was like, yeah. And I said, okay. And then it hit me. How in five minutes do you summarize a person's life that lived 70, almost 80 years of life? How do you boil it down into five minutes that's meaningful and so I wasn't sure how to do it. I've never done it before. And so I called up a friend of mine in college and said, hey, I'm going to do my very first funeral. I need to understand, like, how do I do this? Like five minutes isn't much time and I've got to be efficient. I got to be fast. I got to be clear on what I'm going to say. And he said, I learned a long time ago this pattern of doing funerals. And it's, it's really changed the way I've done every funeral ever since. I'm going to share it with you and see if it works for you. And if it makes sense for you. And I'm like, okay, so he shared it with me and I said, I got it, that makes a lot of sense. And I've done every single funeral the same way ever since I did Miss Brenda's funeral. And so I showed up to the funeral home and so did her son, which was awesome. And I waited for pastor number one and he got way more than five minutes. And then I waited for pastor number two and he got way more than five minutes. But I'm gonna honor my five minutes that I got for Miss Brenda's funeral. And so I, I stand up in the funeral home after one and two, and I start with this passage found in Ecclesiastes 7. It's a passage written by Solomon, who we've been studying, who also wrote Proverbs. And Solomon says this, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasts, because there a man will consider his life. It's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasts, because there a man will consider his life. So it's a really interesting saying. Solomon's got all of this wisdom that he's sharing with us, these life experiences that he realizes at some point in the life and that God inspired for him to pass on down to us. This idea that when we go to a party, we're not really concerned about anything. We wanna know what's the food gonna be there? Like what's the entertainment? Who's gonna show up? How long is the party gonna last? We're ready to get our party on, ready to dance and have fun. Whatever that party's about, that's all we're really concerned about. But we're really not concerned about life in general or any of the hardships of life. But the fact of the matter is that when you walk into a funeral and you see someone that's passed on, it's gone on to heaven, all of a sudden, we're all faced with one true reality. And it's the, ver- the same reality for all of us, that one day, too, we will die. We can't control that. One day, too, we're gonna pass away. And the question is, in the moment of a funeral, is what story will be told about you? And so... When we tell a story, we hear the things that we value, the things that we care about, where we invested, and why that was so important to us. And that's where I found myself that day with Miss Brenda's story. And so as I started thinking about that, I started thinking about, well, what is our purpose? What, why are we here? What, what are the things that we value most? And what are we supposed to do with those things in our life to create a story? And I started looking through Scripture, and I worked my way back into Proverbs, the book that we've been studying as a church, and I found this verse in Proverbs, and I want to share it with you because it's really changed the way I look at what I value and how I pass it on to other people. It says this in Proverbs: "A good person leaves an inheritance for its children's, for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children." but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. So to really understand what this passage is saying, it's really easy to look at it and say, hey, I gotta save up a lot of money. I gotta build a lot of wealth. I gotta be able to pass that down to my kids and grandkids. Well, first of all, I gotta have kids, and then hopefully I'll have grandkids one day, right? But that's not really the wisdom that Solomon's trying to impart in us. And I think there's three key words that we need to sync up on, and then I wanna tell you a quick story, and then I'm gonna share with you how I ended Miss Brenda's funeral. The three words I wanna touch on, one is good. What is good? What's a good person? Uh, The other day, I walked into Starbucks, and uh, this girl was really friendly at the counter, and she was asking me where I was from, and I told her I was from the the States, and I was here to speak at a church, and she's like, oh my gosh, are you with Toby Mac? And I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm not, unfortunately, but if I was, would you come to Southside tomorrow uh, to church? And so anyway, we had this really nice conversation. She made an excellent coffee for me, and I walked out of the store, and I said, wow, she's a really good person, right? And sometimes we have experiences where we're at the grocery store, and somebody does something friendly or polite or kind to us, and we leave the grocery store and go, wow, that person was a really good person, But goodness here isn't quite the same. The word goodness here is talking about an upright heart and life. A connection between the heart and our body where the actions of our heart overflow into the actions of our body. They're so tightly connected. Goodness is an unselfish desire, an unselfish desire to open up your heart and be generous towards others in every circumstance. Open up your heart to be generous with your actions towards other people in every circumstance because you know that it's the right thing to do. And the only way we can know the right thing to uh, to do is to know the difference between right and wrong. And so this goodness idea actually comes down from God. It's the goodness of God that's poured out into our heart where we're able to be unselfish with the things that God's passed down to us and give that towards other people in our everyday actions and behavior. So we really need to know that goodness is a form of godliness. You know, your parents used to say that cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, goodness is godliness, And so we can't be perfect, we can't be God, but the idea of goodness is that we're following and pursuing a direction that God has in our life. And if God's good to us, that we're trying to follow that model of goodness from our heart to our actions with the people that we encounter every single day. The second uh, phrase that I wanna talk about is an inheritance and the idea of an inheritance is pretty easy, it's a passing down of something of value. We tend to think of it being money or property or cars or something like that. Um, We may have experienced that from our parents, our grandparents, our great grandparents, somebody that's giving us something that's passed down and Solomon uses this idea to help us to understand a bigger principle that he's trying to teach us. This idea of an inheritance all throughout scripture is more spiritual than tangible. It's this idea that God has given us something of the greatest value and that if we can understand what that value is, we actually have an inheritance ourselves, and that inheritance is something that we can pass down to other people. Paul says it this way in Ephesians. He says that once you receive the good news, the message of Jesus, that Jesus came and died on a cross for you to pay the penalty of your past, present, and future sins, that God loved you so much that he sent his son to do that. And Jesus rose again to give you life, a promise of an abundant life. God says from that moment, he stamps us as his children and that we have an inheritance. That's our inheritance of life, an abundant life. And so what Solomon's actually saying is you can't pass something down unless you've been given something. And the most valuable thing you could ever be given in your entire life is to receive the good news message that Jesus loves you, that God loved you so much he sent his son, Jesus, and he died on the cross for you to give you real life. And that promise of life is a guarantee from the moment that you believe. The third part I wanna talk about is your children's children, you a good person, passes down, leaves an inheritance for its children's children. And the idea is generations. Children's children would be grandchildren, would be my grandchildren, for example. My kids and then their kids would be my grandchildren. And what Solomon is actually trying to do is to say, hey, this is a generational principle. I want you to understand that the things that you receive from God are his goodness. And when you receive it, it's not for you to keep and hoard. Even if it's financial wealth, even if it's a piece of property, even if it's a car, even if it's something good, that when God gives you something good, that inherently in our hearts, we have an unselfish desire to pass whatever we've received from God down to the next generation so they can pass it down to the next generation and so on. And so this idea of uh, generational wealth is, can we pass on our faith values? down to future generations so that other generations will know how great and how good our God is. So my wife and I, a few years ago, we took this verse out of Proverbs and we really started committing it to heart and saying, hey, what is our story? What is it that God's trying to get us to do? If we're a good person, if we are seeking God directionally in our life and we're receiving all these great things that God's done in our life, what are we actually doing with it? Are we holding on to it? Are we just building a bank account? Are we just building wealth? Are we just building uh, power inside of our companies or influence inside of the world? Or are we actually doing something with God's given us and passing it down to other generations? One of those generations that we wanna talk about is our kids. Like, it's the thing that we value a lot is our children. I'm so thankful that God's goodness allowed us to have kids, and now I have four granddaughters. I'm a girl granddad, I guess, and so I love that. And so I'm like, we've gotta, be, we've gotta be intentional. We've gotta be purposeful. We're 50 years old. We've gotta write a story for the future generations to come. And we started with this question. Would my great, great, great grandkids ever know my name? Would my great, great, great grandkids ever know my name? And I'm like, no, <laughs> they'll never know my name. Like, I don't know my great, great, great grandfather's name but I know a lot about my great, great, great grandfather by what he's passed down through generations. And so I said, what if we lived our life in such a way that our kids know our inheritance and they pass that down to their kids and they pass that down to their kids and what if it sends a ripple through generations to come? The things that we value the most, why we value them the most, and then we just have to come up with a plan for how? How are we going to do it? How are we going to pass it down? So a few years ago, my wife and I, we radically changed everything. We were in full-time church ministry on a staff, and we stepped out. My wife became a realtor, and I bought a trucking company, and we did that so that it would free up the flexibility to be available at different times that matched with where the people we value most had time. And we began investing in them. And so our rhythm and pattern is that every six weeks, we go and spend three or four days with each one of the families. And our job is to serve them and to care for them and to help them in a season of life where it might be difficult. It might be challenging. And so sometimes I show up and I mow the yard. Sometimes I show up and I fix a leaky faucet. Um, Sometimes I take them to dinner because they haven't been able to go out to eat. And uh, that's been part of the value that I can pass down to them is just to be a help and encouragement. But the other thing that's really cool is that I get to actually spend time with them. And it's the people that we care about the most that sometimes we don't always spend the most time with. And so I'm telling them that I care about you a lot because I'm gonna make sure my time is budgeted in a way that values you the most. And in those moments, we have amazing conversations about faith. Uh, My daughter-in-law recently, she made a change in her ministry. She runs a ministry that rescues women from human trafficking. And uh, she made a change in how they care for babies, partly because she now has a baby. And she said, somebody's given me all kinds of grief about that I made this change. We're like, you know, we've never done this before, but now you have a baby. And all of a sudden, we're going to make this change inside of the ministry. And she's like, man, it really stinks. I feel really bad. Like, and I said, well, you know what it says at the end of Job? Job said that he had heard of God's goodness, but at the end of his life, he had seen and experienced God's goodness and it was completely different. And I said, now that you've had a baby, you've seen and experienced the challenge of being a mother and some of the challenges that come with that. And so you've made a change so that all other mothers can benefit from it. Don't feel bad, feel good. That God has given you the insight and the opportunity to make that change. And that just lifted a burden off of her heart because she was like, I felt so bad, like I've done something wrong for so long. And I'm like, it's not what happened in the past. It's what you did about it in the future. It's my chance to pass down my faith and the values that come along with it into my daughter-in-law. And she's passing that down through all kinds of women in her ministry. Every year, we have Camp Bajiji. I'm wearing a shirt that says, Big Guy. This is part of my legacy. It's part of my story. All of my grandkids call me Big Guy. I'm not that big, but I'm bigger than they are. So that's why I go with Big Guy. And... And so every summer, we have Camp Bajiji, Big Guy and Gigi, it's shortened into Camp Bajiji. All my granddaughters come, and it's a week of fun. We take them for ice cream and all kinds of activities, and uh, we invest time in them. We read them stories. I tell them the stories of what God's done in my life and Gigi's life, but at their level so that they can early on get the transfer of an inheritance that's so valuable. They might not quite know it yet, but it is. So this summer we're sitting at the, um, our island having lunch together, and I said, "Hey, who wants to pray for lunch?" And my oldest granddaughter goes, uh, "Big guy, we don't pray for lunch at our house." And I'm like, oh, "I I get that. You don't have to pray for lunch at your house." And I said, "But we're gonna pray here today." And I said, "Do you actually know why we pray?" And she was like, "Uh, no." And I said, "Well." Um, we're not actually praying for the food. It doesn't need any prayer, right? God's already provided it for us. But I said, what Big Eye and Gigi realize is that God provides everything for us. When we woke up this morning, he had the sun to rise. When we took our first breath, it was the breath that he gave us and allowed us. The clothes that we're wearing, the house that we're sitting in, the money that paid for this food, it all came from God. It's the goodness of God being passed down to us. And so when we experience God's goodness, sometimes, just sometimes, we're not so grateful for it. We forget to say, thank you, God. For some of those things that seem like they happen every day regardless, they're not a guarantee and so what we find is the place where we eat, because that's the thing we want the most, like food we all want to eat, is we, before we eat, we just stop and say, God, thanks for providing everything that you do. You're an amazing God. Thanks for your goodness to us. And so what my wife and I have found that we've had this opportunity to begin to shift what we do, it's because we've identified what we value and we've created a plan to pass it on to future generations. It's changed everything. It's changed where we serve and how we serve. In my church, I serve our campus pastor and I spend time with him encouraging and coaching him. Uh, In our church, I give more generously because now I know the value I wanna pass down is my faith value. I want more people to hear the message of Jesus. And one of the ways that we can do that is through our finances and giving generously so that we can expand and reach more people with that life-giving message so that other people one day will have the same inheritance equal to what I have and believing in who Jesus is, a life that's abundant. And it's changed um, everything else we've done. It's even changing where we live um, we're actually looking to relocate our, our household closer to our kids so that we can invest more time in them. And so once you, have, once you know what you value and you know uh, what your plan is, you'll begin to change everything else that you do in life. They, it's really interesting when we think about life and our story. When we think about life and the legacy that we live, we think about it differently at different seasons. So when you're a teenager, let's be really honest, we're all thinking about when do we get out of mom and dad's house? Like, when can I make my own decisions? When can I buy my own stuff? Um, You know, when can I be out on my own away from mom and dad? When we get to our 20s, we're starting to think about like our careers and we're starting to think about like, who will I marry? Like what will life look like being married? And in our 30s, we begin to think about our careers and like, are we doing well in our job? And we start to think about having children. And in our 40s, we wonder if our children are turning out any good. Like, am I doing the right things with my kids? And uh, sometimes we begin to question, did I end up in the right job? Is this really what I wanna be doing? But in our 50s, it's the first time in life where psychologists say we actually look backward and forward at the same time. We begin to reevaluate life, the last 50 years and what's happened, and will the next 25 years be good? And what will I do to, to make a difference in the world? And then we hit our 60s and we begin to worry about our health And we start thinking about, will we ever get to meet our grandkids? And when we get to our 70s and 80s, everything shifts completely because all of a sudden at that age, it's not about what we accumulated. It's not about how much things that we have or how much money we've made or what's in our bank account. Because let's be really honest, most people die with less than $40,000 worth of assets. And if you've ever lost to someone that you really care about, somebody that you value, you would never ever say, that what was in the bank account is equal to the value that they gave in your life. And so in our 80s, we're not worried about stuff. We actually start thinking about our relationships. And we start thinking about all the people that we've cared about, invested in, and that we just wanna hear from. with a phone call, a text message, someone stopping by and having lunch for just a few uh, minutes. Those are the things that become the most valuable and most important to us. And in our late 80s, most of us begin to think about our faith and the goodness of God over our lifespan and how good he's been to us and the inheritance that God has promised for us one day. It's a really amazing way that life works. And it's really interesting because sometimes when we look at that pattern, maybe we should have started with the end in mind. Maybe we should have started living life in our teens and started thinking, what do I want my story to look like? What do I want my story to be at the end of life? I had a friend a couple of years ago lost his wife to ALS and every day he would get up early in the morning because she'd lost all of her motor skills and she was laying in bed and he would get in and go take a shower. And as he stood in the shower, he would look at the wall and he would see three tiles sitting in front of him, tile one, two, and three. And he kept looking at those three tiles and saying, what are they saying to me? What does those three tiles really mean? And all of a sudden one day he's like, I got it. Born, live, die. Born, live, die. He's like, born? I didn't get a choice. I was born. I showed up on earth. And die, we don't get to choose when we die. But the live thing, I actually have some choice in. And so eventually, as he looked at it, he kept saying, born, live, die, born, live, die. And all of a sudden, one day, he goes, born, love, die. And he said, I get a choice of who I love and how I love every single day. And so he could be bitter and upset that his wife was in a bed and he had to get her up and get her changed and bathed and fed and take care of her and get her pills and all of her appointments and everything else. And she was dying. No one ever has recovered from ALS here on earth. And he said, but I get to make the choice how I love her every single day. I get to make the choice how I love my kids. I get to make the choice how I love my neighbors. I get to make the choice on how I love my coworkers. To be a good person, it's an unselfish act of generosity to other people. And so I showed up at Miss Brenda's funeral. I started off with, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feast, because there a man will consider his life. And for the next four minutes, I told the story of how generous and kind and serving that Miss Brenda was. And then I said this, Miss Brenda doesn't get to edit her story. There's no backspace button to it. She can't change it. She can't change your perception of it. She can't change your experience that you had with her. But you're sitting here today and you have a chance to change it because you're still breathing. You can change your story. If your story isn't written the way that you want it to be written today, if it's not the way that you want it to end and people to show up at your funeral and tell your story one day, you have a chance to change that. And then I gave them the opportunity to change it forever. And I wanna give you that same opportunity today. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be at Southside. You're doing an incredible work here in this community. And Lord, I'm thankful for Miss Brenda. She's part of my story and she'll be part of a lot of other people's story. She's passed down something of great value through generations. The first thing she's passed down is her faith. She received her inheritance in the moment that she believed that Jesus died for her. Rose again to give her life. And God, it says that you promise us that inheritance, life eternal in your kingdom in heaven. So God, I pray right now, it's hard for us to give anything. It's hard for us to be good unless we've received an inheritance first. And so for the person who hasn't believed that, I just pray right now where they're at, they'd pray this simple prayer. God, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for being raised to life, that I may have life. Thanks for forgiving me for everything I've done in the past, the things I've done today, the things I may do tomorrow, that I might be in right standing with a good God who loves me forever, that I can receive the most valuable inheritance that I'll ever receive. Thank you for giving that to me. And then God, I wanna pray for those of us who are looking at our story, reflecting today on the very moment of, of death, and the finality of life. And Lord, I just pray that you would help them to think about what they value, why they value it, and then how they're gonna pass it down. God, encourage them to pursue you so that their heart may remain unselfish and that their actions would be generosity towards other people because it's what you have done for us. You've been a generous God to us. And I pray, God, that their stories would forever change and that as they do, they would use what they value the most, what you've given them, and pass it down through future generations, that the story of their life wouldn't just be about them and their name, but it would be about the name of God who loves us all so much and that for generations, people would know how much you love us, God. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, yes so good. I'm so thankful for you guys. I tell you this, you will not want to miss the 8 a.m. service next week. I promise. Mike's already been texting me. I think he's a little nervous about the Canucks jersey, but we'll see you guys next week. Have a great week. We love you. All right.